And so today is Palm Sunday, and in light of that, we're going to continue to talk about what we believe about the church for an important reason. We're going to wrap up this little section of We Believe and this section of teaching in Ephesians 4. And if you don't know anything about Palm Sunday, let me just give you a, a quick refresher here. This is the week we remember Jesus. There's a great irony in this. He triumphantly enters Jerusalem, celebrated as a king, only to be crucified a week later for the sins of the world. And thankfully, while that story, you know, that's the end of it as far as Palm Sunday goes, it's actually not the end of the story of Easter. Because we know that Jesus actually overcomes death and the grave. He atones for the sins of the world. He offers humankind this opportunity to have peace with God if we will go through him. And for that, we should truly be thankful. Connected to his sacrifice on the cross, it's an amazing host, an amazing array of what we call gospel benefits. All of the things he said he was going to do were accomplished when he went to the cross. All of the promises that he offered the world, those who follow him, were fulfilled when he went to the cross. And so there's any number of things that we could talk about here on a Sunday, on Palm Sunday. But there's one thing that I want to sort of tidily wrap up this morning. One of the great promises that he's offered us is the ability to be a part of a new kind of family, the church. And that's why I say this is a great way to sort of end this section of teaching. When he comes off the cross, he forges the beginning of a new type of community, the church of God. And so over these past weeks, we've been talking about what is needed for the church or the family of God. We use that term synonymously here to flourish in a way that honors God and blesses people. And we have looked at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, various aspects of it. In this teaching, Paul pointedly describes what God desires the people of his church to be, in other words, their identity, and what his expectations of us are in the church family. And thus far, just sort of a quick summary, we've learned that one of the main ways we value and build God's church family here on earth is when we learn to love and value each other in the same way that Jesus loves and values us. So the very love he shows us on the cross, the love that he pours out on the world as he ministers to the world, in part, certainly not in perfection, but in part, we are supposed to embrace that same idea and love our neighbor in the same way. We also learn that when a church family, when the gathered people of God do treasure each other like this, and I do believe this one does, we need to be mindful of how valuable that heart attitude is. And as we discussed last week, we need to be willing to protect it. We need to be willing to guard the unity of the spirit, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, in this place. Very important teaching. And I want to just refresh your minds here. As I mentioned last week, we have this teaching, this prayer in John 17, where Jesus prays for his church to be unified in the way that we've been discussing. He prays that the number one thing the world would see in us is this common love for him that spills out of our lives and creates a common love for our neighbor. No matter how far they are from God, no matter how hurting they are, that the people of God would be unified in their love for the mission of God, serving the world in the name of Christ. And then Paul here tells us this type of love, this type of unity, must be guarded. And the reason we're told to guard this type of relational unity in the church family, and as we'll talk about here in a few moments, in any relationship, is because the kind of selfless love the Bible speaks about here, it can be very hard to come by, even more difficult to keep when you have it. If you have been involved in any type of a long-standing relationship, parents, spouses, friends, family, the church family, you know that the most significant relationships you have are often the ones that are the most blissful and difficult. You know, you can have the most peaceful relationship with somebody that you deeply care about, but it can also be very conflict-oriented at times. And that is the nature of being close with people. And there's a point that Paul is making here, that this type of love, this type of unity that Jesus desires us to have, has to be cared for. Because the human heart, if it is left unchecked, our default posture is almost always to preserve self. When we drift, what we'll do is put ourselves above the nature and needs of others. It is not usually a common place for people to wholeheartedly serve others at the expense of self. 
The unredeemed language of the heart really says, take care of me. And that's an important thing to know. Because that attitude is what will actually damage the type of unity Jesus wants us to have in his church and with other people. And this is why Jesus explicitly prays for this in John 17. And Paul tells us to make every effort to guard it. We have to spare no effort in this area. And so one of the clearest evidences that we are guarding the unity of Jesus' spirit in our lives is when we begin to live a life that is defined by gentleness, by patience, by humility, and according to what Jesus does on the cross, peacemaking. And this is what I want to dig a little deeper into today. I want to examine a truth that can really give us some, some evidence of whether or not we are living like Jesus in this area of our lives. And doing so revolves around knowing and practicing a theological truth. This is going to be the nature of any type of theology we read in the Bible. It's the premise of this whole series we're doing, and we believe that the very things we know about God are supposed to, in very deep and meaningful ways, shape who we are in God and what we do for God. And so we cannot just celebrate the peace that Jesus makes on the cross between us and God this week without being the type of people who perpetuate the very same peace. It wasn't just offered to us so we could marvel at it. It was offered to us so we could experience it, obviously, but then pass it on and share it and make peace in the circles of influence that God has placed us in. And so this theological truth, knowing and practicing, is a simple one. Jesus on the cross offers the world an amazing opportunity to have peace with God. And one of the clearest evidences that we understand what he's done for us on the cross is when we are committed to promoting what Paul calls the bond of peace in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. This is a bond that is forged on the cross by Jesus. What he's talking about is this, this it's unbreakable now. The bond of peace that Jesus forged on the cross between us and God is now in, it's, it's in effect in the world. And for those who look to that bond, for those who look to the one who makes the bond, who died for the bond, who forged the bond on the cross, what happens is we have the ability to be at peace with God. And when we make that choice to know Jesus in deep and meaningful ways, to live in the peace of the cross, to be back reconciled with our Father in heaven, when we choose to live in the shadow of the cross, we should somewhat naturally become agents of peace and reconciliation like Jesus. And that's why Paul says one of the greatest evidences of the unity of the Spirit in us is when we begin to embody the very same attitude that Jesus had on earth. We should not be a people devoted to divisiveness or critical spirits or negativity. We should be devoted to the work of the ministry, to reconciliation in any area of life that God provides us the opportunity to reconcile in, whether that is just naturally in our peer influences or in the greater example of us helping people to know and grow in the grace of Jesus. And that's why this morning I want to spend a little time revisiting a biblical tool that I share with you guys a couple of years ago. It's a tool that can help us to to manage conflict well. I want to take Palm Sunday in a different direction this week. I actually want to very practically talk through why it is important to be a people who know peace and make peace. And so I want to share with you some steps based on some stuff teaches us, uh, Jesus teaches us in Matthew that give us some important waypoints to think about how the relationships in our lives look and whether or not they are in conflict. And if they are in conflict, how we're handling that. Or maybe we're the type of people who peacemaking comes somewhat naturally to. That could be a possibility also. If that is who you are, then what that means is God's given you an exceptional gift in this area. And what that means is people will likely come to you, they will approach you to understand how to make peace with others. And so this is a tool we can use for our own relationships, and it's certainly a tool that we can use to invest in the lives of other people as we seek to help them make peace. And so as we proceed, please remember, from here on out, we're going to talk about some very practical steps, three of them. But the root of all conflict resolution is not found in practical steps. 
Practical steps disconnected from the truth we're introducing today really are just practical steps. They're steps that are sort of forged in our image. But the type of peacemaking we're talking about this week before we celebrate Easter is deeply connected to understanding how Jesus makes peace between us and God on the cross. There is a power in that that trumps any ability we have to practically move through relationship reconciliation. When we reconcile in the way Jesus talks about, what happens is we are now we are exhibiting the power of God. That same bond of peace that has been shown to the world on the cross is now in us and active in our relationships. And so simply put, one of the marks of those who have experienced this Easter truth, remember next week we celebrate the resurrection, but this week we think long and hard, especially as we approach Good Friday, about what it costs Jesus to make peace. The truth is that one of the marks of those who have experienced true Easter truth is when we desire to be at peace with the people around us. And this leads me to the only we believe truth that I want to share with you today. We believe to keep the bond of peace, we must have a biblical understanding of how to deal with conflict. To make peace, we have to know how to deal with conflict. And I reread to you just a quick verse in Ephesians 4 before we jump into Matthew 7, where Paul tells us, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The marks of worthiness here are not that we desire or demand or have great accolade from the world. It's not that we are proud or puffed up. As I said last week, there's a deep irony in this. Serving the great God of the world, of the universe, it manifests itself in us by being completely humble and gentle, by being patient, by bearing with one another in love. The manifestation of this type of power in our lives is that we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So through God's great power comes peace. And that's why one of the most common threats to the peace and unity of Jesus' church family, whether it is us gathered, the relationships we have with other people that know Jesus, or just people in the world, one of the most common threats to the peace and unity of Jesus' church family is allowing unresolved conflict to persist. Whether that is in a benevolent way, meaning we're not the types of people who, who are comfortable addressing things, that's one way that conflict can persist. Another way conflict can persist is Maybe you're the type of person who's super comfortable addressing conflict and problems. So on one side of the fence, you have a person who can't deal with stuff. On the other side of the fence, you have a person who delights in dealing with conflict. Both of those are probably entirely unhealthy. One is passive to a, a point of problem. The other is a bit sadistic when you enjoy sort of, you know, dealing with conflict and making ways wherever you go. Some people are just like that. We don't want either one of those. We want our ways in this world to be ways of peace. And so conflict of any kind, no matter what context it is in, it is almost entirely rooted in two or more parties more concerned with preserving personal agenda at the expense of promoting Jesus' redemptive mission of grace and peace. Some of the great battles in the church world, especially, some of them are legitimate. Don't hear me saying that some of them are not. But a great many of them become battles because we have missed entirely the, the, the command Jesus has given us to be people of grace and peace in the world. When we take our eyes off of that ball, what happens is we're likely to get mired in conflict. And this is why one of the most common teachings in the New Testament, and one we examined in great detail a few weeks ago, charges God's people to make sure they are always striving for a Christ-centered unity with God and each other. There is no perfection in this, but there is the need to strive. There is the need to know that Jesus has made the way for this, and we are truly shepherds given the responsibility of guarding the peace of God. Peacemaking like this is one of the greatest marks of a true follower of Jesus. And a teaching like this implies two very important things. The first is that relational unity doesn't just happen amongst God's people. While God gives us the power and the authority to be at peace with each other, there is truly a responsibility we have in this matter. 
We can ignore teachings like the one we're looking at in Ephesians. We can forget about the deep and significant truths the cross of Christ show us. We can look at these things and ignore them without doubt. Or we can look at them and admire them and pray for God to make them deep and meaningful realities in our lives. And so we don't ever want to take this for granted that laboring for unity will require a ton of prayer and a lot of effort on our part. And second, as I said last week, when it is present in a relationship, whether it is in this church, with people you meet with in a community group, folks you have supper or coffee with in a private way, friends in your workplace, wherever it is, it is a grace of God we must strive to preserve and protect. We should not take it for granted. And here's why this is so important in the long-term health and effectiveness of the people of God, of a church like ours, or of personal relationships. This is rooted in, in pre-eternal stuff. If you recall when we talked about the Trinity many, 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 many months ago in this series, we talked about how God is in three persons, and these three persons are God. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes great emphasis about all three in this text. We pointed out how God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are unified in everything they are and do. We are set apart to reflect that image. And so theologically speaking, we call this the unity or the simplicity of God. The fact that God is one in three and three in one. And they are never at odds with each other. Now, don't hear me striving or speaking for some unrealistic expectation of relationship. There is no way that we cannot have odds or be at odds with people. My point in a teaching like this is, I guess the way I would say it is this, and I often bring this up in, co in uh, conflict counseling, especially marital conflict. I say that the absence of conflict is not necessarily the mark of unhealthiness. The inability to deal with it is where the problem is. So in our most significant relationships, there can be conflict and probably will be. That is not necessarily the problem. The problem is when we approach it in problematic ways or we are more concerned with preserving personal agendas than we are the unity of the spirit. What happens is the way we deal with conflict is often where the cracks in our armor are revealed. And that's because of this beautiful relationship we see in God and the Trinity. When God redeems us and he places us in these local communities we call churches, keep in mind the church's birth because of Jesus' death. This is something he thought was very valuable and had great purpose until his return. Inherent in us, inherent in that power and expectation is that we will do our best to live in ways that move the church and our relationships and life toward Christ's peace love and unity. So our thoughts, our decision making, whether it be with friends or family, with our children, with our spouses, with whomever, is that what we are about to do or the way we are about to do it, is this the kind of thing that the end game will produce peace, love and unity? Or is what we are about to do sort of mired in personal promotion of self and it is, is it likely to increase the chance of conflict? These healthy community ideas in the New Testament, they're not novel ideas or optional life rhythms for the believer. They are attributes rooted in the God who created us. They are meant to be evidenced in the life of his followers. And this is why striving for unity and reconciliation in our relationships is such a strong scriptural theme. It's also one of the reasons Jesus goes to the cross. The alpha example of this is that his death gives us the ability to be reconciled with God. All the problems, the brokenness, the failures of sin in this world, they are given the opportunity to be mended through the cross. And so the general idea of what we're saying today is the most cosmic relationship history has ever known, that between God and man, was destroyed by the sin of man. And Jesus finds a way to make peace between God and us. Therefore, we should in very deep and meaningful ways be the types of people who strive to bring about the same peace in a problematic and turbulent world. 
Just like the cross, the way we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ is meant to reveal the heart and soul of who God is to the world. Our actions matter. That's what I'm saying. With that in mind, it's important, this is the revisiting piece of this morning, that we have a practical approach for dealing with conflict when it does find us in this church or anywhere else in life. I don't just want to think about peacemaking this week. I really want to look at some words in Matthew that give us a really clear pathway to, to make peace, should we have the opportunity to do so. And that's where we'll spend the rest, the rest of our time in teaching anyways this morning. I want to share with you three conflict resolution steps. They're taken from Matthew 7, and they help us to honor God, ourselves, and our neighbors should conflict ever arise. When we read Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, there are some important truths that come out of this and some other places where Jesus speaks. But I want to share one important truth from Matthew chapter 7 with you right now. The first step in peacemaking in our world, if conflict exists, let's just say, assume that that's the case right now, we are to evaluate the plank in our own eye before we go after the splinter in someone else's. This is taken directly from Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Jesus says this, addressing this very same subject. He says, and keep in mind he's speaking to a group of people who are incredibly self-righteous. This is not our problem here, thank God. But this group of people he's speaking to, the Pharisee types, they have become experts at pointing out the faults of other people. And what happened over time is that they were utterly blinded to see their own faults. They could no longer sense the presence of God in their own lives as he sought to point out their issues. Because they were so concerned, they believed they were put on the earth to point out the problems of other people. That's a one-way conflict method. And that's a great way to have nothing but conflict in your life. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, Jesus says this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now here, he uses the word hypocrite. I don't think that this is our problem here, but his audience in the first century world is essentially a bunch of hypocrites. They're a group of people who are trained above all else to know the grace of God, and they have the inability to show it to people. And that's why his language is pretty rigid here. I'd like to soften that a little bit, the, the language maybe, but not lose the authority of the teaching. Because in this teaching, Jesus literally tells us that this is one of the first steps in any type of conflict that we're dealing with. And what he's saying is, is before you go, wherever the conflict is, before you go blaming someone else for something you think is an issue in their life that affects you, make sure it's not a challenge or a problem in your own life. And this is a really important statement because it goes back to something I said earlier. That in our most broken forms, our, our decisions, our ways of handling conflict, it's almost always defensiveness. We want to be right or justified or vindicated. And what happens here is Jesus says that's not where we should start this. We should start this reality by looking at whether or not there is some truth to the reality that has been presented to us. Otherwise, we get the splinter and the plank mixed up. So let me give you some examples of this. Um, very common in our world today as we increasingly press into hyper-idealistic understandings of relationships because of what social media is doing to the world. I'm not an old fogey here. I use social media. I really don't care for it, but it's out there and we have to use it. So don't hear me saying it's an entirely negative discipline. But one of the things this has done in our world is it has created picture-perfect realities of relationships. And we should not be surprised that the way we present ourselves in the digital world is having an effect on our lives in the physical world. And so if we find ourselves in a situation, perhaps the greatest problem in any relationship is idealistic expectations. If you're living in a world where you feel people are always letting you down, it's important to first ask if you've placed a realistic expectation on the people you feel are always letting you down. 
Because to have this attitude in our lives actually destroys any relationship in our lives. This is especially true in the close-knit relationships, spouses, children. Idealism has a very, it's just very easy to slip itself into any type of thing we're dealing with. And while I'm not against having ideals in the world, idealism is a problem because what it does is it sets up a relational expectation for people they could never achieve. And we live in a world of constant penalization. That's all we're doing to those folks because they can't hit that bar. And what happens here is we are sort of deceiving ourselves. The issue isn't them at that point, it's us. We can go back to the cross and see where this would be a problem. I mean, God could have for all of his days yelled to the world, acquire holiness, be holy like me. He could have yelled all of the things that we needed to be to be reconciled to him, knowing we could never achieve them, blaming us the whole way. That's not what he does, though. He actually fully acknowledges we cannot in any shape, form, or fashion. There is no ideal that he has set before us that we can achieve. And so rather than bludgeoning us to death or crushing our spirits, he makes a way for the ideal to be met. He says, I'll show you how holiness will be present in your life. My son will provide it for you. I'll show you how to deal with unrighteousness in your life. My son will take it from you and give you his righteousness. That's what happens here. The very nature of the cross shows us there is no ideal in the way God looks at us. He makes a proper way to mend the relationship. So we want to be mindful of that when people speak to us. Let me give you another example. Maybe you're angry at somebody because maybe somebody very important in your life who, who has offended you. And maybe the nature of this offense is thematic. Maybe they keep saying things like, hey, you're short-tempered. Or, hey, you're always so impatient with me. Or whatever it is. Maybe the thematic nature of that, there could be some validity to it or some truth. But if we're so concerned with defending ourselves in that moment, then what happens is the plank just gets larger and larger. And we might even create conflict in a relationship, in a relationship, frankly, that God is using to help us become more like him. Maybe you feel like your spouse or your friend doesn't listen or communicate well with you. No matter what the nature of conflict is, Jesus says rather than immediately getting defensive, preserving self, which could be a sign, not always, there are times you know, to defend ourselves, there can be abusive behavior here, we're not talking about that today, but I'm saying in the context of a meaningful, healthy relationship, this type of behavior can be a sign that we're striving to protect self and not the peace of that relationship. That's why it's important to first evaluate your life to see if it's true. This theme is replete in the Bible, and Jesus directly nails it here. There's a host of reasons, simple and serious, that could potentially be a source of conflict in any relationship that we have. And our goal is to make sure, before we blame it on somebody else, that we've really taken an honest look before God to see whether or not we might really be a part of the problem. So when dealing with personal conflict, it's good to start by asking, have we played a role in the conflict? That's a hard question to ask. And it's going to be even harder if we hear the answer yes. But it's an important answer if we really value the nature of the relationship. We have to examine the potential plank in our own eye, as Jesus said. This helps us to avoid overreacting, because that's a problem, or wrongly addressing an issue in another person's life that really is something that God is trying to deal with in our own life. Over or underreacting can be avoided if we take some time to process the problem, the plank in Jesus' own eye. Otherwise, we make the splinter the big issue, and it's not the issue at all. Self-evaluation is critical, and self-evaluation must come objectively through our relationship with God, meaning we can't just evaluate ourselves without God. He's got to be a part of that presence. And I also want to share with you, it's critical that we have the community or some form of the community involved in this also. So after we evaluate self, the very next thing we do is confirm conclusions by praying and consulting the counsel of others to see if there really is a problem to address. Let me explain what I mean by this. You get to a place where um, the, the critical reason for this is that no matter what it is we're dealing with, 
when we arrive at conflict, it's very likely that the least objective person in our own life to comment on our life in that moment is going to be ourselves. I mean, when you're in the heat of battle, that is, that is probably going to be one of the, the least real times that you can actually objectively think about your situation. We might want to be heroes in that situation, but the truth is when the, the temperature's at 105 degrees, we're not calm in these moments. And that's why it's important to invite the counsel of God and the counsel of God's people into a situation like this. Oftentimes we don't see ourselves as clearly, like, clearly as we would like to or believe we can. And so if you conclude that there is an issue, it's worth praying and seeking, and hear me here, the counsel of somebody who is wise, proven, and mature before you act. This is an instruction found all throughout the scripture. There are literal proverbs that t- tell us things like, where there is lack of counsel, plans fail. The Bible is so concerned with communal faith. In other words, the expression of our individual relationship with Jesus is fleshed out amongst each other. It talks about it regularly. And I want you to hear that this is such a problem in the American church because we are utterly concerned with individualism for the most part. And so what happens is we don't think naturally, at least most of us, in this paradigm. We automatically think, well, I'm my own individual, and therefore I have my own freedoms and liberties. And, you know, I always joke and say we think of the the revolutionary flag, the South Carolina flag, where it says, don't tread on me. And we just steamroll something and go right through it. So much of the conflict in our lives could be avoided if we sought genuinely the counsel of God and the counsel of proven men and women who have addressed situations and gone through situations before us in these areas because they can speak wisdom into places where we might need to address a problem we don't want to address, and they might temper us in a place where we might address an issue that really isn't an issue. And please note here, when I say speaking to people, I'm not talking about gossip. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we want to sift these truths, these questions, through other people who are godly. That requires us actually having meaningful relationships with other men and women, not just fly-by-night relationships, but we actually have somebody in our life we can go to with these things. And we actually are somebody that can be that somebody can go to us with these things. We want to ask them if what we're about to do or say, if the way we're thinking is honoring God and the re- very relationships we're trying to keep intact. A great many of the challenges of our relationships could be avoided by having the input of somebody who is more sane in that moment. And I'm not trying to say that we are plagued with insanity. I'm just trying to say that sometimes when we are really, really dialed into a conflict or a problem, we are so ramped up that we actually cannot think logically at that moment. And that's why it's important to invite the counsel of other people. And there's another thing I want to say that's important. Not every issue, this is the, the importance of the splinter and the plank, not every issue constitutes a conflict issue. So if you are prone to dealing with conflict, then what happens is you will likely address issues that do not need to be addressed. That's a problem in self, not a problem with the other person. Some things should not be addressed because maybe they're more realized in our minds than they are actualities. Like, for example, when I talked about idealism in relationships, we might address that in somebody else, but the real issue in that relationship might be us. So we don't want to overreact, but I'll also tell you the, the kind and wise words of another brother or sister in Jesus can actually help us to understand the places where, where some form of conversation is mandated. Meaning, if we don't bring this up, we'll, we'll re, we really will damage the unity of that relationship, whatever it is. This is often where so many of the most meaningful relationships in our world are. When they hit rocky points, they don't just start there. What happens is there's a neglected reality for some time. So when a marriage goes to the 
counseling table or close friends sit at the counseling table, there's often a long season of this happening, either overreacting or underreacting or a combination of both. And then eventually what happens is there's a divide between the two people. And then they seek help at that point, asking somebody to take a, a relational sledgehammer and destroy the wall between them. But the problem at that point is that these attitudes have been so buried in that relationship that it's not just a quick fix. It requires a long-term care program. And so let's do our best to avoid that. The best way to sort these out is to pray and have people in our lives to talk about this stuff with. And this means being connected to a family of Christians who love Jesus. It means being connected to people that don't only just look like you and think like you and act like you, but there might even be some diversity in your relationships. You have people in your life who are further down the road than you. There's always somebody further down the road of sanctification than us. And then, just being very honest, it is very likely that we are somebody who is further down the road of somebody else's sanctification journey. And so in that way, we become light posts to be able to help people navigate conflict. Because a true peacemaker with a proven track record of loving Jesus and their neighbor well is likely going to tell you that they have not followed God alone. They have followed God in community with people. And so we must do this. We must invite the counsel of wise people into our lives. Lastly, and very briefly, and this is sort of where we, we wrap up the action point. This is directly connected to the evidence of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Ephesians. Lastly, if we deal with people, when we deal with people, whether it is in general conversation or real conflict, we are to gently and humbly talk to the, pierce, the person. In other words, gentleness and humility, loving one another, bearing one another in love, there is no relationship, no matter what state it is in, that we are allowed to exempt this response from. Now, some relationships in life, if they're truly abusive, we might be, need to be very wise in the way we handle them. In other words, we might need to be somewhat protective of ourselves in those situations, <clears throat> but we cannot remove humility from them. If your steps one and two check out, then we've arrived at the place where our next step, this is truly where the, the conversation of the cross takes place. This is where the action of Jesus shows us that sometimes we must respond. There's something you will have to do to mend the relationship. This is the difference between handling conflict in a way that honors Christ, or frankly, using some of Paul's language, gives the devil a foothold in our lives and a relationships that threatens the unity of Jesus' bond of peace. We're gonna sow seeds one way or another. Seeds of unity and peace, or seeds of divisiveness. And so for many of us, this is where this issue becomes the real issue. Praying stuff is okay, maybe even talking to somebody is okay, but the reality of having to speak to somebody, either in a gentle or humble tone, if you're the type of person who just pops off no matter what goes on, maybe the gentle part is what is the issue here. Or if you have a challenge speaking to somebody in general, maybe just getting up and doing it is the issue. There's lots of reasons why this is the case, Sometimes this reality is somewhat paralyzing. That's how it feels anyways. Maybe we feel ill-equipped. Maybe we're concerned with what will happen if we raise what our concern is. Whatever it may be, as a result, in, as a result the person knows that they should bring this up, whatever it is, but instead chooses to bury it, guaranteeing an unhealthy outcome because they plant a seed of bitterness. That's where this ends up. I want you to think about this. What if Christ went the other way? What if the Trinity, what if they decided that they were just going to abandon mankind, humankind, and say, listen, um, man, that's such a jacked up situation under heaven. Let's just build the wall. Let's act like it ain't happening and ignore it. Imagine what the world, I don't even know what the world would look like if God removed his hands of grace from it right now. But I do know that that is not the action Jesus showed us. His action was to insert himself into the world and to begin to mend the relationship and to move it in a different direction. There is no bitterness with God. And there should be no bitterness with us. When we plant those seeds, 
they grow into incredible weeds that threaten the unity of God. They damage us, our hearts. They, they are destructive to our souls. They create critical negative spirits against persons and people. They might even create a negative spirit against ourselves. Sometimes they can become outright gossips. These attitudes are always the enemy of God's peace because they are destructive to our soul in the name of Jesus. And so if we ever sense these things developing in our heart, it is critical that we honor God and show a courtesy to the people we claim to love by talking to them about it. And that example is forced on the cross. Interestingly enough, the, the one last thing I'll say here is that for a lot of folks, when they are approached like this, if they are also concerned with the unity of the kingdom of God, what happens is sometimes they're unaware that they've even created a hurt in your life. And so what happens is it's, it, it can be equally as common to see people be really humble and apologetic about that. And so it is important in the relationships that matter most to us that we use this idea of the benefit of the doubt, that we give it to people unless they've done something that has, has caused us to not have it. I mean, if they've hurt us in a way, then we might need to be mindful of what benefit we provide that person. But sometimes God wants us to even work through the hurt. We have to have the courage to bring that up. In any relationship, especially those that represent the very nature of what Jesus did on the cross in the world, it is important that we strive for unity. We have to resist against the spirit of self-preservation. And evidence of that resistance is when we love each other enough to have input in each other's lives, conversation in each other's <laughs> lives, that we care for each other in ways to preserve the unity of Jesus' spirit. And our ability to marry our hearts to those truths, it's a very important one. Because the future health of our soul in Christ and our church and the church globally, locally and globally, it's all connected to this idea. Our lives are deeply connected to this, this concept of unity. And so we have lots of places in the scripture that talk about this. And I'll leave you with this one idea. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, Jesus talks about him increasing in us and us decreasing in ourselves. And what I want to say here is that the closer we get to peacemaking in our lives, the more likely we are having more of Jesus in us. It's one of the greatest evidences of him really moving and working in our lives because it's an attitude that promotes peace at the expense of self-preservation. And there is probably no greater truth that the cross teaches us than that. I say regularly, Jesus disadvantages himself to advantage us. That's the nature of what we think about this week as we move towards Good Friday and celebrate the resurrection. While choosing to glorify self almost always promotes self-promotion at the expense of God's name and peace. Simply put, one builds the unity and the other destroys it. And so as we move to our communion time on this Palm Sunday, think about this. The, this table is the greatest evidence we have of peacemaking. We are asked to remember what Jesus did for us for this very reason, so that we would never forget the significance of what he did on the cross. And in light of that, I ask you to think about a couple things this morning. Ask yourself, how are you handling conflict in your life, if or when it comes up? Do you lash out? Do you ignore it? Do you deal with it in a way that is harsh? Or do you strive to preserve Jesus' unity? Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you when it comes to understanding the bond of peace Paul talks about here? that Jesus secured on the cross for us. And just as importantly, how will you promote this bond of peace in your life and relationships when the Lord provides you the opportunity to show the world the peace of the cross through the very nature of your life, your actions, and your words? I pray that that truth would guide your heart as we move to this table.